Welcome to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brannan, guiding business owners to the exit they deserve. Ross is a financial advisor who knows that business owners work too hard on growing and caring for their businesses not to leave it on their terms. Each week he interviews a different experienced business owner, expert, and other professionals ready to teach you effective, satisfying business exit strategies that will let you exit your business your way. Don't wait until it's too late. Start thinking exit now. Here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. Today we have Joe Strazeri. For those of you who don't know who Joe is, he is a Jedi in the legal community. He's a former general contractor, land developer, and business owner, and now he's an attorney in Southern California, but he's not just a attorney. He is an, one of the smartest people I've ever met. He is a thought leader and has created numerous organizations to help people uh, to share the knowledge with what he, to share his knowledge with people. He's the founder of the Southern California Institute, the Laureate Center for Wealth Advisors, Strazeri Manzini LLP, and the Founders Group. This is going to be an exciting conversation. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ross. How are you today? Very well. Now, I did. I forgot to mention- By the way, also, I don't know who that guy is you just introduced, but if I meet him, I'm going to shake his hand. <laughs> <laughs> Next time your wife's mad at you, say, hey, call Ross. Yes. <laughs> um, I forgot to mention you're also a published author. And you do a lot of things, and you do a lot of things in the high net worth space, but you also have some really, some wisdom- and we tend to focus on these things in the high net worth space, but they apply all, to all families everywhere. And just your, talk a little about your story and your experience and how you got where you're at today. Well, a little bit of story. I'm my parents. My mom was a, is a German. I have a farm girl that happened to come out to California and join a, a group called the Scott Single Catholics over 22. My dad was 40 when she was 22 and he was a member. And he was this crazy Sicilian that came to this country with nothing, that built his world after worrying that he, he was running away from poverty and saved everything and pushed and shoved and made it all happen and was a dominant force and was in businesses that made money. And if it didn't make money, he changed the business. So if it was a meat market to a grocery store, and when that was taken over by supermarkets, he went into construction, didn't know how to do it. And then built buildings and kept them and a dental office was going out of business, became that manager. Real estate was part of our blood. So I have that kind of an entrepreneurial background. Um, I was lucky enough to go to college and do those things. My parents didn't. My mom was a nurse. I ended up being a general contractor by trade. I hammered out to the law school because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. I really wanted to be a lawyer, but my family didn't because those are people you buy and sell, not who you are, was their kind of comment. I didn't become a lawyer until I was 30, um, very much against my family's wishes. And I am now a business owner that happens to own law firms and educational firms. Um, I worked for marketing firms and I ran, I built and sold three businesses prior to being a lawyer and one roll up since. I originally came in thinking I was going to be a criminal lawyer. I found construction and real estate for other reasons. And within that, I found out that people who are in construction and real estate made money but their state and their federal governments wanted a lot of it and that they had asset protection issues where they could be sued. And that if you help protect against them being sued and help protect against federal and state governments taking more of their money, they were really happy. And that I could charge for that, do well, make sure instead of charging the client for advice that really didn't move the needle, if I could really move the needle financially, 
they'd be willing to pay us a part of that or some amount. And uh, that went well for years. Uh, Steve, my partner and I grew a firm. We're now eight lawyers and 20 people all together. Within that, we realized that you can educate to motivate. So we help our financial advisors, CPA friends, we, and people in the financial industry, we educate them on these subjects. And we use a bunch of our friends to educate too. And that way we can do joint work. I will say that it's very rewarding to help families like this in what you would call um, income tax planning, capital gains tax planning, asset protection, estate planning, and business work. And to the point where you help them transfer to another generation, maybe the business, or sell it. I will also say, though, that somewhere after my heart attacks, my partner Steve and I ended up considering what was really successful within families we work with. We've held on this firm for 30 years. And if I talk to the older group, they would say success is just not the numbers on the bottom of the balance sheet, which is important. But an aligned family who can inherit it well, who are not entitled, who still have an eye on the tiger, thrive and, and do, who still contribute to society, and where the wealth or the obtaining of it doesn't drive a wedge in the family. This is really a fascinating point because so many people are obsessed with money because of the culture, and they think money is the solution to your problems. Money is merely a tool that allows you to do things. But if you talk to any billionaire whose family is a train wreck and they don't talk to their kids or their kids don't talk to them, I'll bet you anything, because I know you've talked to these people, they would trade places with someone who's middle class, who has limited means, but who has a healthy and happy family. Am I right? Yes. And um, if I might, entrepreneurs often get tagged with a negative word called narcissism, and they're not. And the, the element that they're missing is they're not doing it to selfish for them. Entrepreneurs are servant leaders to their business, to their customers, to their employees, and most importantly, to their family. They're doing all this stuff for people they love, but they get so focused on doing it, they dedicate so much time to it that everybody thinks that that business or that money is what drives them. What drives them, almost every successful entrepreneur I know is not running towards anything because they, they already hit that and they're still running. They're probably running from something, from poverty, from a loss, from not being successful. Jerry Jones has said that in interviews. Yeah, and if you're going down this path, they're really trying to serve their group, their customers, their balance, their business, whatever it is, but it's to serve their family. They dedicate so much time to this other though in serving their family that sometimes they lose a connection or a family becomes, I'll call it jealous of their business because they need up so much time. It's the phone call at night. It's the that ruined the family vacation. It was the, I'll have to leave a day or later or whatever it is. But these families are really trying to make sure, the heads of those families are trying to make sure they take care of each other. And take care of each other doesn't mean, do I ruin you? It doesn't mean, do I hand you money? You don't have to work. It means, how do I have you feel like a productive member of society? And how do I have you get along? I can't tell you the number of kids that are in their 40s or 50s that say, I never want in the family business because it produces not a good family life. And then the entrepreneur just sulks down in their chair like, damn it. So, you know, there's a, in these last couple of decades, people have talked about work-life balance. I will tell you that never existed before. Nobody talked about that. And entrepreneurs didn't, didn't talk about it. You hear the pride of, I work 12 hours a day. But they're, every one of them, when I get them in a quiet room and I have a glass of wine, 
and we talk about what's next, their biggest regrets have nothing to do with business and money. It has to do with the interpersonal side. And you're right. I don't know if they give up all the money. <laughs> but I, are they are they or they would just barely get by? But they would reprioritize. How do I have this cause security without entitlement? How do I have this cause a comfort but still a drive to do more? How do I cause this to contribute to society? How do I cause a good family person that themselves will take care of their family? How do I do that? So in your several decades of working with high net worth families, working with business owners, helping them to uh, mitigate income, capital gains, and estate taxes, and all the advanced planning you do, if you were talking to business owners today, what one piece of advice would you give them? Business owners are really good about looking ahead and saying, what am I doing now and what will the effect be long-term? They're no longer planning for this year. They're no longer pushing today only. They have a goal in mind and what the net effect is. They have an exit strategy or they have a desire at the end or they have a plan for it afterwards. But when it comes to their, uh, when they interact with a professional about their taxes, about their estate, whatever else, they are become very tactical about how do I say this tax or this piece in a vacuum, not realizing that asset protection, income tax planning, capital gains tax planning, estate planning, and family harmony are in the same frigging mixing bowl. So the biggest piece of advice I would give is before you sign that next set of documents in front of a lawyer, or God forbid, a specimen that was created by another professional, please realize you are binding yourself and your family to a set of rules, and I call it tools for rules, that will make people fight in the future. You're gonna get that one goal and you're guaranteeing a fight. Those documents can be drafted to cause alignment instead, then still get the benefit you're looking for. But you have to get with somebody who understands that, who's just not clicking buttons on a computer program and hitting print. They understand how they work. In my opinion, get with somebody who deals with the back end problems and help them work with you with the front end. If you're working with somebody that's not experienced the back end problems, they don't know what those documents can do. So the misalignment in families are often predetermined by documents where the client meant to have do good and they created a, a nightmare. And don't go for the cheapest person because many times you get what you pay for. Well, I would argue as I go down this, and this is self-serving, mind you, many advisors in this space find that they create value by getting the client a less expensive service. So I, an advisor would say, I will, I, I help you with these things and I can get that cheaper for you. But, I, but the problem is, will it be 20 times or 500 times more expensive? And the reason behind it is you take many strategies like Charmander Trust or limited partnerships or LLCs or, mon- or monetized installment sales or intermediate installment sales or whatever. It would take me three to five days to teach an attorney or an accountant the nuances of any one of those. But there's a brochure in four pages that explains it, and somebody signs a document like the others. Because the advisor has seen this before or went to a three-hour seminar, and the client installs something not knowing the options they could have had or the things they limited themselves to, 
in that thing that causes a, sh- a disaster later on. In addition, if I was to quote my buddy Simon Singer, you and I were talking about earlier, it's not about one big move to solve a problem. It's about a variety of little moves that solve it. And it's about timing, combining, and sequencing. Unfortunately, in our industry, often the one big move does well for the advisors, probably does better for the client, but neither that advisor or client understands the nuance of what it will do in the end or what it could have done. They solve for the issue, but they don't see that it affects everything else. Well, I think that's a really good point. You get somebody who goes to a seminar and they're now a one-trick pony and they have a hammer in their hand that everything they see is a nail. And, you know... It might be a PVC pipe, but they got a hammer and it's a nail. Yeah. Well, construction um, analogy. When I explain our law firm, because somebody will say, okay, tell me what you do. If I was to capsulize what we say in our law firm, um, we work with successful families and business owners. That's our market. And we do two things. We get to the heart of a highly relevant matter and we resolve messes in three areas, integrated tax and estate planning, business succession, and family governance. But that resolving messes is half of my life because of the things that people signed that they didn't really understand. And we're years later now, and God forbid my principal's not there, and the family's dealing with a disaster that they signed that the family didn't understand when they signed it. Or we are now adult children and grandchildren, and somebody's gonna arrive, and, and we're all playing protect the castle. So my one of my favorite stories, um, there's a wonderful gentleman that sold an alarm company that then caused his family business to go into real estate, did everything with his kids and did a bunch of planning and a bunch of entities. And one of his daughters got mad at the investment and they eventually sued each other. They spent a million eight litigation with each other. And dad leaned back when I looked at him, I said, do you realize you're suing, you're having a lawsuit over what you gave her? And he said, yeah, but how'd I get here? I said, did you not ask yourself that in the first hundred thousand legal fees? So often even the arguments, if you get to a family who's arguing, um, we have a program called Hope is a Great Conversation, and we deal with toxic family relationships sometimes because if you don't set it up right and you get to this back end, can't the family still have help? And when you explain the dominoes were set a long time ago and the first domino was nobody's fault because they were trying to do good and all these dominoes are reactions to each other, but it's not bad intent, it's reaction. And there's a misunderstanding of underlying fact and there's a misunderstanding of motive. Families want to be together and do the right thing. You can sometimes unpack it in such a way that you see people that haven't hugged in years go and say, I never knew that. And they give each other a hug and it kind of restarts the clock. Lawyers say that you can't change your local documents. And that's a goddamn lie. They're say lying. that again. Say that again. Gosh darn lie. But they lawyers say what? You can't change an irrevocable document. That's not true. That's simply not true. If you give me all the parties that have a pen, you can change anything you want. There's corporate, there's court motions to do it, and there's lots of flexibility. There's the candidate to another state. You're never stuck with the rule book. You are able, if you all agree, to make it better and not have the terrible result. Because what you're telling me is when you sign your legal documents, and you know, my legal documents are 250 pages getting shipped via UPS from our mutual friend, Kristen. Yes, love um, her to death. Yeah, um, here shortly. But uh, what you're telling me is if you're not working 
or with your if you're working with a cheap uh, estate planning attorney or a fly by night estate planning attorney, it should come with a free therapist, is what you're telling me. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd ever call them cheap, or I would call them um, anything else negative. I would suggest in today's world, back back in years ago, to in order to draft something, you would have to understand the concepts, and then you would custom draft it. In today's world, you can buy a program and click multiple options and a document comes out. The vast majority of law firms these days click not knowing what the language is and the lawyer doesn't even read it. And then the client gets it and reads it and does it because it was easy to click and do because you may have 300 choices while clicking for that document. There's no way the client and the advisor met for an hour were able to cover all those. So therefore, the attorney or paralegal is making choices for the client that they didn't know they had. Well, I think the easiest way to ex- explain that is almost all estate planning documents have the children getting the money. If, if the if the parents predecease them and goes to a testamentary trust, they usually get a third at twenty five, a third at thirty, and a third at thirty five. It's like it's like boilerplate estate planning, and while that's better than nothing. I know for a fact, and you know exponentially, exponentially more than I, that is not the most efficient way of handling distributions. You know, it depends on the family. If you get me um, somebody who is good with money, has a strong marriage, and they've saved, they got their first house is now a rental, they've got their second house, and they're a great kid, and they're starting to run a business, and you want to release money to help the business or not, that is a different story than the child that has had three businesses that have failed and is still trying hard, how would you support that child with distributions would be radically different. The trouble is when you start it, you just don't know. I have a 21-year-old son that graduated a few weeks ago a semester early from Gonzaga. I have a daughter who's 17 that's in her senior year of high school. I've got a good idea which way that's going to go on each one of them, but I don't know who they're going to marry. And who they're going to marry is going to radically affect how they act. Now, for me, I'm an old-fashioned Sicilian. Respect is a big deal. So I probably have buried all sorts of triggers in there to cause respect and reward (laughs) good behavior. Now, I shouldn't control from the grave, but I had a father that did. Maybe I still want to, but at some point, am I going to mature out of that? Also, if I was them, wouldn't I want whatever came to me in a way that I had access, but I couldn't lose it? God forbid 20 years from now, they got a divorce. What I want half of what I saved to leave or what I wanted to stay with my kid. I will also tell you often you fall in love with your grandkids more than your kids, you know? So what do you do about that? And the, the, the trouble in our industry is that the tax planning tail wags the dog or the asset planning tail wags the dog, or can I finally do this and get it off my plate wags the dog instead of updating Most, as we said earlier, most families don't realize that there's an interplay between income tax, capital gains tax, estate tax, um, asset protection, family harmony, those things interplay. And if I'm not here and the document's going to act without me, what does that do? Also, there's a spectrum of control. The more control I give up, the less tax I pay. The more control I keep, the more tax I pay. The more, con- the more control I give up, the more asset protected it is. The more control I keep, the less asset protected it is. And it's a spectrum. We as professionals should not choose the spot on the spectrum for our client. 
we should spend the time to educate our client to have them choose their spot on the spectrum. So that can't be done in a one hour meeting. It's a series of meetings that might be a half a day to a day to allow a client to be educated. Now it is true, I have some older gals, I'll think of one, Suze, and Suze calls me Boo. And she says, Boo, I trust you, we've been together for years, do what you think. I say, honey, I'm not gonna do that. You're gonna have to learn and choose or I'm not your guy anymore. And the advisors are like, no, she just said, buy this, let's go. And I say, we'll get there, but I want her to know that she feels good about it. Do you know she appreciates the slower conversation? And all she asks for me now, she's been of an age, he said, you know what, Joe, can we do two or three hours in the morning, an hour or two in the afternoon, get together the next morning after I sleep at the beautiful hotel and recap and I'll make my decision. She's in her 70s. She needs a different pace of communication, but she's a wickedly smart lady. Shouldn't she have the power of the pen? Uh, you're right. So let me pivot the conversation because I was talking to someone earlier today who sold five orthodontic practices for a nice number and they have a high income for their 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 other business and i see with private equity buying a lot of things they're obviously buying a lot in the medical space um you know whether it's you know dermatology optometry veterinary veterinary uh dentist orthodontist but a lot of these people don't do tax planning because they're not familiar with what's available. Now, every situation is different, so we don't want to get into specifics here, but just talk a little bit about, you know, with proper planning, whatever that may be, it's a situation by situation uh, scenario, What what's available? Like if you sell a business for 10 million bucks, you know, I live in Florida, you live in California, 37 and 50% basically difference, but you know, from an in, from an income tax, but then there's long-term capital gains or net investment income taxes, all sorts of different things. What's possible from a planning standpoint when you sell an asset at a high at a high price? Sure. So let's do a preamble. In the last couple of years, stupid money has been chasing businesses because it's known that the market is valued at twice what it really is. The only reason the market is where it is is because of trading. The underlying value of the, the companies in it are less than half. So money's been scared to death of the market. And that's because of 0% interest rates, basically, for 12 years, correct? Uh, um, well, the market being higher is tr- a trading issue, right? Yeah. Real estate, some people would say that's kind of um, in, that that's kind of bloated. So money was looking for a place to go. Number two, we have the lowest interest rates that anybody has seen in history. So, and number three, banks would not lend to buy a business unless the buyer had skin in the game. But during the last two years, the bank was okay at lending 80 cents on the dollar as long as the seller carried 20 cents. So the buyer had no skin in the game. That's never been true. So the combination of those things, remember uh, these investor groups use other people's money None of their personal risk, owner carries back 20%, and they buy these things for amounts of money that are ungodly. The businesses were never worth that much. And owners were being approached, they were getting 10 calls a week. I I cannot do this. And then for an amount of money that they knew it was never worth. At 80%, it was worth more. 
If they burned their 20% stock, it was still too much. So it was craziness. So there was a lot coming at But whether that's the stock market where it comes at in a few years after it drops and goes back, or the real estate market when it drops and comes back, or businesses when it drops and comes back, money will chase something that it thinks will be better less. The problem is that I, as an owner, bought it for almost nothing or started with almost nothing, and I have a set of taxes due based on which entity I started it as, based on what I have it is now, based on how I've run my accounting to pay less income tax, I now have some sort of a capital gains tax or earned your income tax, depending on how I sell. And if I do sell it and it was worth a million dollars, I'm only going to get 600,000 in cash because I got all these things to pay. Cost of sale, cost of this, taxes, whatever, or 500,000 if I do it terribly. And I think to myself, well, even at a big number, losing half ain't worth it because what I'm going to give it to some other deployment of the other assets the rate of return isn't going to be enough for my life. So your question then is, what can be done? The closer you are to the offer, the letter of intent, the closer in time you are to that, the less legal financial and tax strategies you're allowed to use because the other IRS says it's a set transaction. You're doing this to save taxes, not for business. So the closer you get, the more strategies drop off the ability. When you first form a company, how you form it and what entity or not is largely the determinant of how you're going to pay your tax. Part of the way through, when you switch, there might be a there might be an embedded income tax problem for it or not. And how you own it will change. I have a cannabis company, a gentleman who went bankrupt eight, uh, nine years ago. When he started the next company, he gave each one of his kids 25% of the stock that they contributed $1,000 for it. He did it because if he ever got sued again and lost everything, the kids would have it. The company is now worth $80 million. The kids own collectively 40 of it, but they were never given it. They bought into a business that grew. So he still has all the estate tax ability to shift the rest of the asset. But he did it for the wrong reasons, but he had a wild success. He included the children of it. His friend that has a similar business has to go through all sorts of legal um, consternation to shift the wealth to his family and has tens of millions of dollars of tax more. When it comes to the sale of the business, there are certain businesses that if you set it up right, each family member gets a $10 million exclusion or a $5 million exclusion from the sale off the top called 1202 or qualified small business stock. But you had to form it in a certain year Keep it for five years and it was a C-Corp. If it was an S or LC, you don't get it. But that's an elimination by planning. They could have done a spin-off company and sold the spin-off as part of it and got some of that. Then beyond the not pay, there's the delay. Why would you don't want to delay? If you're going to pay it anyways, why delay? Because all the money you keep from the delay, that money is earning you money. So you get extra income. 100% more or 50% more income than you would have until you owe the tax. So there are strategies to delay the tax. Now, often um, there can be charitable strategies included because if there are three doors your estate's going to go through for income tax planning or estate, one is your family, two is the IRS or estate, and three is charity. Nobody ever wants to necessarily give to charity if it reduces the family. 
But if I can reduce the IRS amount, where 70 cents on the dollar goes to the charity and 30 cents on the dollar adds to the family, why would they not do that? So it's about, are there ways to eliminate the tax? Are there ways to delay the tax? Why you delay is because you get income off of what's still there. Um, a good friend of mine, Jeff Dunham, one time said, Joe, it's about cash flow. It's not about how much the buckets are. It's about how the buckets create cash flow. So that's the next subject is once you get the buckets, how do you deploy it for net dollars to buy milk, gasoline, and, and dinner? Well, that's, Most that's people the just say it's a big number. Net worth is always the measuring stick, but ultimately net worth doesn't matter because you could have a piece of vacant land worth $20 million that's just sitting there. It's a piece of dirt. It doesn't generate any income versus well, an apartment building that generates income. Well, and let's go down the path. Dr. A, who's worked hard and saved, got a divorce, and now in her portfolio, she, in her divorce, organized to get the $4 million house, her $1 million retirement account, and he took the $5 million investment portfolio, real estate and stocks. Who's worth more money? The $4 million house is not an income-producing asset and costs money to run and has a lot of deferred maintenance, and the million dollars in the retirement account is only worth 500000 the investment portfolio has a capital gains tax if you ever sell it, but there are lots of ways to reduce that. Who did better in the divorce? Exactly, him. But And that's true for people who grow their wealth. I was walking with my son the other day, and I talked about two people who graduate college and how they both live. And I painted the scenario about somebody who lives in a little condo that they buy, that eventually they get enough equity and they buy the the, the the fourplex where they live in one of the fourplex, they rent out the condo, they rent the three units, they live in the little fourplex. And he says, but who wants to live there? I said, give me five years of the story versus the guy that went out and got married and um, and that the other person that bought a house for the first time. And the, they bought a bigger house and they live in a prettier house. But we got five years down the road and college student A was able to, was able to have an income started a thing, they were five, 10 years away from financial independence, and person B was strapped to a mortgage they can't afford that didn't have enough money to take a vacation. Who was stupid? Now, person B had a gorgeous home. Person A had a financial security. And I said, so tell me, son, what do you want? Tell me where you want. I'm going to help you with your first property. Where do you want to deploy that? So, you know, it's an interesting conversation. And he said, well, will you help me with this? I said, I'll match whatever you do. I'll be a second on the property. I'll match whatever you can save and do, but where do you deploy it? Are you looking for the sexy thing right now? Or are you looking for financial security? No, it's it's great. So it, this is the this is what's so critical about, do you, do you, I mean, if you plan appropriately, which requires time and doing it ahead of time, there's so many options. And that's why working with an attorney who specializes in this type of stuff makes sense. So as we wrap up, Joe, if someone wants to work with you, how do they get in touch? They call Ross. <laughs> <laughs> they should, they should, by all means, people, you should call Ross because if you want to work with me, there are a lot of me types out there in the world that are based in geography, talent, personalities, ways to handle no uncertain situations or not. In my opinion, you should call Ross because he's got an amazing black book. 
I do have a good Rolodex that where they used to call a Rolodex back in the day. Uh, God, it's yes. important to have a good Rolodex. But Ross, it's like the relationships you have. Um, you're able to talk to a client or talk to another advisor, analyze what it is and say, I've got somebody you really need to meet. You've spent your life being a connector and you spend your life connecting with hopefully who you find to be the best of the best. You spend an immense amount of time trying to understand, talking to the industry, vetting them out, and then realizing what they do as you work through them. So my answer back is they should call Ross. Well, I appreciate that very much. Joe, thank you so much for your time today. As always, it's a pleasure to talk. All right. Thanks a lot. See you guys. You've been listening to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brannan. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Paz, Guardian, or North Florida Financial, and opinions stated are their own. External sites and materials are provided for your convenience in locating related information services. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees expressly disclaim any responsibility for, do not maintain, control, recommend, or endorse, third-party sites, organizations, products, or services, and make no representation as to the completeness, suitability, or quality thereof. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664 Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License Number 16139032. California Insurance License Number 0L10073. 2023-149739. Expires 125.